So uh, this weekend, my wife, Sydney, uh, was out of town for a couple of days. She went to visit her grandmother to help her move into a new place. And so she was gone for a few days. And kind of the one instruction that I had, kind of my one job was to make sure my three boys were alive when she came home. That was like the the single goal to just kind of keep them alive, to help them survive. And so for the last couple of days, it's been me and my three little boys trying to survive. I've realized a lot of things, a lot of insufficiencies that I have as a dad, as a cook, as a man, all of these things. I've kind of learned as I've been trying to take care of this five-year-old, this three-year-old, and this 10-month-old, but it's been just kind of this amazing experience. And so for the last couple of days, we've been doing all of the things that guys typically love to do. We've been playing in the mud. We've been riding our bikes. We've been eating junk food. We've been watching too much TV. And then yesterday, I had the joy of indoctrinating them to the wonder of SEC football. And it's a tough day for Tennessee fans, uh, tough day for Auburn fans too. But uh, anyways, it was, a, it was a day where I just kind of got to bring them in and say, this is the joy of college football. And so we sat around with our shirts off, eating food, watching football. And one of the things that I, I love about the kind of age that my boys are in right now is they don't want to just watch things. They want to play things. They, they, they want to act it out. So if we're watching baseball, they want to throw something around the living room. They want to run. If we're watching American Ninja Warrior, they want to roll and jump and kick and climb. And when we're watching football, they want to tackle and they want to fight and they want to throw and they want to kick. And so we're, we're, we're there watching football and we're playing and we're wrestling on the ground. And my middle son, Jack, who's three years old, is the most competitive human being on planet Earth, maybe other than my wife. He got that from her. Not a good quality. He got her, her competitive strength. I love you, Sydney. He got that from her and he wants to know. He wants to be the best at anything he's doing. And so we're watching football and he keeps saying, Dad, I want to be a big grown football man. Like I want to I, I be a big grown football man. And he's trying to ask me about the game. And so he's seeing things that are happening on the screen and he wants me to explain it to him. And, and you don't realize how complicated everything is until you try to explain it to a three-year-old. I'm like, okay, there's offense and there's defense and uh, there's formations and there's coaches and there's, I'm trying to explain it. And he's not very smart, so he's not getting all the rules of football. And then in this stroke of brilliance, just like fatherly genius, I look at him and I say, Jack, here's the game of football. You're trying to get this ball across this line more times than Micah. That's the whole game. This ball across this line more times than your brother. And he's gonna try to stop you. And then when he has the ball, you're gonna try to stop him. And so for the next few hours, it was just this simple, kind of beautiful picture of football. Just get the ball across the line. That's the big idea. That's the goal. And one of the things that I, I know is that if he loves football when he gets older, if he still loves the game, he's going to wade into all of the complexities, the rules, the strategies, the formations, the players, and the teams. But what I know is if he does not take the time to really get his heart around the big idea of what makes the game the game. All of the other stuff won't matter in the long run, right? Like he, he's got to understand the big idea. I was thinking about that this morning. You know, we come to Mark chapter 12 and Jesus is just a few days away from being crucified. He finds himself in the temple, which is the heart of the religious system during the days of Jesus. And this religious group of people, much like you and I, they had gotten very good at majoring in the minors. They knew all of the small rules. They knew all of the things they're supposed to do. They knew all of the behaviors. And yet somewhere along the way, they had lost the forest for the trees. They had lost sight of like what it meant to really be the people of God. They knew the rules, but they missed to what it was that God is pointing to. And so there's this moment where Jesus is having a conversation with the religious leader. And the religious leader says, can you tell me what is it that God is actually after. And in one of Jesus's clearest, most brilliant teachings, he says, this is what God wants for your life. 
And I wanna just kind of stop us this morning. I know it's been kind of a chaotic morning. I know it hasn't been exactly the way that we typically allow things to go here. But I want us to wrestle with this big question. Do the things that matter most to Jesus matter most to you? Do the things that matter most to Jesus matter most to us? Like when we stand before the Lord one day, will we discover that the things that matter to him were most significant to us and to this church and this group of people? So that's where we're gonna pick up Mark chapter 12. We're gonna start in verse 28. And I just wanna read this kind of over us this morning. And are you guys doing well this morning? You alive? You here? Everybody good? Okay, I'm just gonna read this Mark chapter 12. We're gonna start in verse 28. It starts like this. It says, one of the teachers of the law, that's one of the religious leaders, came and heard Jesus debating with the other religious leaders and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. That's what Jesus does. He gives good answers. He asked them, of all the important commandments, Jesus, which is the most important? This is the moment in college where your buddy has not been paying attention and it's almost time for the test and he raises his hand and he says, okay, despite everything that you've taught us, despite everything we've read, what's gonna be on the test? And all of a sudden, everybody gets out their pen, everybody gets out their paper, everybody starts paying attention because they know what he's getting ready to say is going to matter. And I want you to notice this. Jesus isn't going to give a parable. He's not gonna give a riddle. He's not gonna use some big religious language. He's gonna say, this is what God wants for your life. This is what God is after. This is what it looks like for us to move this ball across this line. This is the thing that we're trying to do. Look at his words, verse 29, very familiar words. He says, the most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater command than these. And so there's this moment where this religious leader looks at Jesus and says, listen, We have made this thing called religion so complex, so complicated. We know the rules. We know the behavior. What is it that God is after? And Jesus looks at him and says, it's this ball moving across this line. And this is what the ball is. This is what the line is. He says, there is one God and you were created to love him with the entirety of your life and to give your unrelenting compassion to every person you pass as though their needs were yours. Jesus said, this is what God is after. And I wanna give us just kind of two phrases this morning to kind of help us get our minds around this really simple teaching of Jesus. I don't know if you take notes, but I encourage you to just kind of write down these two phrases or to take a mental snapshot of these two phrases. This man looks at Jesus and says, what matters, Jesus? And Jesus says, this is what it's all pointing to. Every rule, every ritual, it's all pointing to this. God wants your undivided love and your unrelenting compassion. What does God want for the people of Ethos? He wants our undivided love and he wants our unrelenting compassion. What does God want for you as a follower of Jesus? He wants your undivided love and your unrelenting compassion. These were not new commands for the people during the days of Jesus. In fact, they'd wake up every morning and they would quote these before, as they'd start their day. They would end their day by quoting Deuteronomy 6. That's what Jesus is quoting here. As they'd start their worship services on every Saturday, they would begin and end their worship services by quoting Deuteronomy chapter six. Much like we do, we say our mission is to love God, love people, awaken a movement. This is the way they would start. This is the way that they would end. What Jesus was giving them was not something new. He was simply giving them something that they had yet to live into. 
And Jesus says, this is the big idea. This is what God is after. Undivided love, unrelenting compassion. And I want to just look at these real simply for a moment this morning. Let's start with this idea of undivided love. Look back at verse 29 and 30. Jesus said, this is the most important thing. This is what God desires. This is what God wants from every human being. And he begins to quote Deuteronomy chapter six. He says, hero Israel. In other words, pay attention. What I'm getting ready to say matters. It's almost like Jesus like stopping his foot, like raising his hand, like, hey, if you zone me out, Israel, hear this. Take this in, pay attention. He says, hear this. The Lord our God is one. There is one God. And this is where he starts. Jesus looks at this young religious guy that had kept all the rules and he says, here's the big idea. There is only one being. There's only one thing in the entire universe that is both worthy and capable of receiving your unlimited praise, adoration, worship, and love, and that is God. Jesus says there's nothing or no one else that is capable of occupying the throne room of your heart in a way that will bless you other than God. He says your spouse, your spouse can't occupy that position. Your children can't occupy that position. Your friends, your careers, your goals, any of the things that you try to put in the center of your world will ultimately let you down. And he starts, he says, the greatest command is this. The thing you need to pay attention to is this, is there is one God, and I want you to notice the command that he gives. He says, and I want you to love that God with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, and with your strength. And we could, we could break this down, and we could talk about what does it mean to love God with your heart? What does it mean to love God with your soul? What does it mean to love God with your strength and your mind? But here's what Jesus is saying. I want to make this so simple, you'd have to pay someone to misunderstand it. So simple, Jesus says, you were created to love God top to bottom, inside and out, with every thought, with every action, with every motive, with every desire, with every choice. This is what God is after. Not just a part of your love, he wants all of your love. I think about when I first started dating Sydney. Maybe some of you have had this feeling you started dating someone or maybe you got a new job or a new hobby or a new career, whatever it is. And have you ever had one of those moments where someone or something, all of a sudden, they arrested all of your attention? Like I remember meeting her and I'm like, wow, who is this? But she will be my wife, you know. She's just beautiful, amazing woman. And I got to know her and all of a sudden, everything about me, unintentionally, and this is not good, I'm not saying this is good, but as a 19-year-old, all of a sudden, everything about me began to revolve around her for a season. All of my thoughts, like I'd be sitting in my dorm room and in a non-creepy way, I'm like, I wonder what Sydney's up to right now. I'd think about her, like, where's she at? What's she doing? What, what is she thinking about? My actions began to change. I'd find myself hanging out with a group of uh, my guy friends and I'm like, man, if she found out we were doing this, what would she think? You know, and all of a sudden my behavior was changing. You know, women have this way of like growing us up as men. Like, I don't want to be an idiot, you know. Or I, I would be leaving my dorm room and I would see the t-shirt that I was wearing. I was like, I may run into her. So I'd put on a nicer t-shirt before I left the dorm room in case I ran into her. And everywhere I went, I could be in a room surrounded by people and she would walk in and all of a sudden she's the only one I would see. Do you know this feeling? Maybe it's with a person you love. Maybe it's with a hobby Maybe it's with a job. Maybe it's with some ambition. You lay awake at night and you just think about it. Nobody has to get you to think about it. Every time you have free time and energy, you're doing this, you're going for it. Like he says, he says what is God after? Jesus makes it so simple. He says, what God is after is that you would love him 
like the thing or the person you love most. All your thoughts, all your attention, all of your affection, all of your joy, all of your strength, all of your motives. What Jesus says is, hey, God is not after just an hour on Sunday morning or an hour in your house church. He's not just after your money or your service. He's not after just your quiet time or your prayers before dinner or bed. What God is after is every thought, every choice, every decision, every inclination of your heart. He wants your undivided love. And then he keeps going. He says, I'll give you a freebie. You ask for one command, I'll give you a second one. He says, the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, he looks at this young man and he says, listen, your life is designed to give God the entirety of who you are and the result of your undivided love towards God becomes this unrelenting compassion to your neighbors. This unceasing, unyielding, uh, unquitting compassion for those uh, that are in your path. If you remember this same conversation that Jesus has as it's recorded over in the Gospel of Luke, This is the point where the religious leader raises his hand and he goes, wow, that's an unbelievable amount of love for other people. And you can imagine him feeling maybe what you and I are feeling. And he says, okay, who's my neighbor then? Who's the person that I'm supposed to love like that because I have a limited amount of love. I can't love everyone that way. And so maybe you remember Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the story of the great Samaritan here right after giving them the great commands. And he tells them this story about a man who was beaten within an inch of his life and left on the side of the road and two religious leaders pass him by. And then a Samaritan shows up and helps him out. And here's the cliff notes for the great Samaritan or the good Samaritan. The man says, who's my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus says, anyone in your path that has a need, that's your neighbor. Anyone in your path that has a need is your neighbor. So Jesus says, what is it that God is after? What does God desire? It's not just Sundays and sermons and sitting and listening and standing and singing and giving and serving and managing your morality. He says he's after your undivided love and your unrelenting compassion for those that are in your path. He says, I want you to love them. And the standard of your love for those human beings is your love for self. Have you ever noticed that the gravitational pull of your heart is yourself. Like, no one has to instruct you on how to love yourself. Nobody had to teach me how to love me. No one is more averse at at loving Dave Clayton than Dave Clayton. Like, when Sydney says, what are we doing for dinner tonight? I never go, I wonder what Jack wants. I think of what I want. When somebody says, hey, what what are we doing this weekend? I I never go, hey, what does Will want to do this weekend? I go, what does Dave want to do this weekend? Like, I am trained every breath of every moment is to love myself. It's the way I'm conditioned. And Jesus says this beautiful thing happens when you begin to give God your undivided love, all of a sudden, the gravitational pull of your affection is no longer yourself. It is actually the needs of the people around you. He says, so what God is after is this undivided love towards your heavenly father that spills over into this unrelenting compassion for other people, a type of love so fierce, so bold, so beautiful, it even looks like you love your neighbors as much as you love yourself. Jesus says that's God's vision for your life. And I love this young young religious leader's response. Look back at the word with me, because his response 
is so honest. I related with his response so much this week, and it is, it is so beautiful. Verse 32, he says, well said, teacher. You are right in saying that God, there's one God and no other but, no other but him. I love that, to tell Jesus that he just did a great job teaching the Bible. Great job, like, great job teaching the word that you inspired since the beginning of time, you know. Great job. Verse 33, he says, you're right. What God is after is to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all of your strength, and to love your neighbors yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any questions. And so I love this beautiful moment. He's there with this religious leader. The religious leader says, what is it that God's after? He says, this is what God wants. He wants your undivided love. He wants your unrelenting compassion. And I want you to notice the man's response. His response is both full of inspiration. He is inspired. And it's full of humility because he's instantly humbled and realizes he can't possibly live it out. I love the inspiration. He looks at Jesus and says, well said, like great teaching, great work. God is about love. Love for God and love for people. You're right in that. And I love the inspiration that he feels, but you keep reading, you get into verse 33 and you see the humility because instantly he goes, and you're right, burnt offerings and sacrifices aren't enough. This guy's whole life, he'd been taught maybe what you've been taught. His whole life, he'd been taught if he could just keep the rules, he'd be good with God. And if he screwed up the rules, then he could offer and sacrifice and then he'd still be good with God. And his whole life, this is, this is what he had taught. Keep the rules, modify your behavior, go to synagogue, go to temple, say your prayers, read your scripture, do these things, and then when you mess it up, offer penance to God and you'll be cool. And all of a sudden, he's standing here before Jesus, who is the fullness of God in human flesh. He says, Jesus, what does God really want? And Jesus looks at it and he says, he wants your love. He wants your heart. And the guy says, wow, you're right. No religious rules could ever manage his sinful heart. That's what he's saying when he's saying burnt offerings and sacrifices won't do. He says, I can manage my life. I can come to church. I can give my time. I can serve on a volunteer. I can do these things. But I cannot fulfill what God is actually after. And I was thinking about this all week long as I was reading this. I was really meditating. I mean, so common. I, sometimes I honestly hate teaching this part of the Bible because you've heard it so many times, it just goes right over your head, right? We, we quote it every week as we end our worship gatherings together. Love God, love people. Yes, that's what, that's what it's about. And I go, but have you ever really stopped to think about what it is that God is asking of us? And it is both an inspiring thing and a humbling thing when we really let the weight of Jesus' words here in Mark chapter 12 rest on us. All week long, I was inspired. I mean, think about this. Jesus could have answered this question any way he wanted to answer it. The man could have come to Jesus and said, Jesus, what does God desire? And Jesus could have looked at him and said, God desires that you pray 23 hours a day and you abstain from anything fun. Hate your life. That could have been the greatest command. Like, Jesus could have said that, but what does he say? He says, there's one God, love him and show compassion to people around you. And I go, isn't it true that when we hear this teaching of Jesus, you love this? I love this. I love that Jesus loves love. I love that God loves love. I love, I love. I love that Jesus is about love. It's inspiring. But it's humbling 
when I stop and really go, okay, do we as a church, or maybe even more importantly, does Dave as a man embrace what is most important to Jesus? I'll just kind of let you in on my life. I won't even make you deal with your own. You can deal with your own this week. I'll just let you in on my life this week. Um, Two confessions. In the last 18 or 19 months, I don't know if I've ever had a week where I felt as disconnected from God as I did this week. Wasn't on purpose. I didn't wake up on Monday saying, this will be the week that I neglect the Lord and abandon his promises for me. Like, that wasn't in my calendar. I didn't wake up and say, this will be the week where I'll watch more Netflix than pray. This, this will be the week when I'll be consumed with worry and doubt and fear. I did not wake up at the beginning of this week and make the decision that I would not love God with the entirety of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But here's the reality this week. Not only was God not first in my life, he probably wasn't second, third, fourth, or fifth. I mean, he was way down the list. And I'm not saying this, like, please, if you don't know me, I'm not saying this with any sort of, like, joy. Like, it's just real. Like, just one of those weeks. And I was reading the scripture going, okay, God, I can't even keep the greatest command for a week. I mean, just try this. Just try this, one week of loving God with the entirety of heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like, don't mess up once. Can you imagine like how impossible this is? Just try it this week. When you screw that up on Monday, <laughs> kind of whittle it down a bit and go, okay, let's love God for a day. Can you love God this way for one day? I'd argue you can't. <laughs> when you screw that up on Monday, on Tuesday when you wake up, see if you can love God like this for an hour. Can you love God this way for one hour? Maybe you're like me and you'll mess that up as well. And I go, can you love God like this for one minute? I am so spiritually ADD. Have you ever had one of these moments? It's like you're in the word, you're praying, God, I love you. You're glorious, you're amazing. Butterfly. <laughs> God, I love you. You have my heart. Oh, wait, wait, who's picking Mike up from school? God, I love you. I wanna walk with you. God, you can do anything. And then you overdraft your bank account. God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? <laughs> like, have you ever had that? Have you ever felt that? And I go, it's, it's inspiring and it's humbling. I go, I can't live this out. I can't live this out. Let's take the second command for a second. As if that one's not hard enough. Jesus says, okay, love your neighbor as yourself. Show unrelenting compassion. Thursday morning, I'm driving to the office to write a sermon about loving God and loving people. I kid you not, true story, not proud of this. Driving down Harding Road and I pass a young mom, probably in her early 30s. She had at least two kids in the car that I could see. Car just clearly broken down. Smoke is coming out from under the hood there in rush hour. I'm driving past her and I instantly have the thought because the Holy Spirit loves me and loves her. The Holy Spirit said, hey Dave, pull over and help her out. I knew that's what God was calling me to do. So um, I'm kind of doing that thing that we've all done where we're just kind of debating with God. Like, did you really mean that? Was that theoretical? Okay, Lord, I'll pray for her, thank you. you know, I'm like, just kind of doing that thing in my mind that we all do. And, and then I have the thought, she probably has a cell phone. She's probably already called someone. And I drive in to the office. I sit down at my desk and I spend the next few hours writing this sermon for you about loving God and showing unrelenting compassion to the people that are in my path. And I go, not only did I miss it with her, I bet you I missed it with a hundred people this week. Maybe a thousand, who knows? And there's this moment where I'm like, oh God, I can't do this. 
And I think this is the reason the story ends the way that it does in verse 34. The people don't jump up and down going, yes, love God, love people. That's our new mission statement. They're not excited about it. It says, no one dared to ask Jesus another question. They went, wow, who can do this? Because Jesus was not lowering the bar. He was raising it through the roof. And I think we have an option how we receive these words of Jesus out of Mark chapter 12. I think you can receive these words like a legalist. You know, some of you have been trained to do this your whole life. And so you hear these two commands and you go, okay, I'm gonna love God with all my heart. And you write it out in your day planner. This is how I'm gonna get my heart under control this week. And I'm gonna love them with my mind and I'm gonna love them with my strength and I'm gonna love them with all of me. And this is what it's gonna look like. And, and you've tried this before, right? And I go, here's the problem with receiving the words of Jesus like a legalist. It will always lead you to a place of frustration and fear. Because you will try it and you will try it and you will try it and you'll realize you can't do it so you'll be frustrated and then all of a sudden you'll be fearful wondering, am I really saved? If the entire Bible could be written on a three by five postcard, Jesus is making it clear that you and I couldn't fulfill it without the help of Jesus. Saying this is it. And you can receive it like a legalist, kind of your white-knuckled Christianity. I'm gonna try this, I'm gonna try this, I'm gonna try this, but it'll just lead you to frustration or fear. Another way you can receive the words of Jesus is you can receive them like a relativist. And this is where a lot of us end up after we have grown up in a world of legalism. We, we all of a sudden begin to treat the words of Jesus like a relativist and we go, okay, like who's really to say what love is? When we do this really terrible thing, we start comparing ourselves to each other, right? And it's like, oh, I'm more loving than Will. And Will goes, well, I'm more loving than Katie. And Katie goes, well, I'm more loving than Deanna. And Deanna goes, I'm more loving than Hubie. And Hubie goes, I'm more loving than Hitler. And we can all find somebody. You're way better than Hitler, Hubie. Just like we, we all find someone next to us that we're more loving than, right? And go, I can do this. I can fulfill this. And so when you receive the words of Jesus, like a relativist, we, we become prideful. We go, man, I love ethos. Ethos is so much more loving than the church I just came from. Man, I love my house church. It's so much more loving than wherever it is that I just came from. We become prideful. I go, Here, here's the problem with receiving these words of Jesus like a relativist. It's that God doesn't grade on a bell curve. We're not gonna show up before the Lord one day. He's not gonna line up all of humanity. And he's not gonna say, okay, the top 40%, you get an A, you're into the kingdom of God. You will not be compared to me. You will not be compared to your spouse. You will not be compared to the person sitting next to you. You will be compared against Jesus Christ. That's the standard. And when we receive the words of Jesus like a relativist, we either become prideful because we compare ourselves to each other or we become apathetic because you realize, man, I just can't do it. And I go, do we receive it like a legalist? Do we receive it like a relativist? Or do we receive it like a disciple? And a disciple has this ability to stand in the tension of the bigness, the inspiring nature of these words, but to also walk in the humility of this reality that we can't possibly live this out apart from the help of Jesus. You can't do this. You can't live it out. I wanna caution you Make sure you don't ever subtly embrace any form of Christianity that it is possible for you to fulfill apart from the help of a living Jesus. 
I'll say it one more time because it's so important. So, so much of what we embrace in America is not actually Christianity. It is heresy kind of covered up with the, the lipstick of Christianity. Make sure you do not embrace a form of Christianity that is possible for you to fulfill without the help of a living Jesus. And Jesus looks at this guy and it's like they're kids playing on the, uh, the living room floor. And Jesus is not doing away with all of the other rules. He's not throwing away the Bible. He's not throwing away everything else. He's saying, no, I'm trying to help you see what they all point to. And I think what Jesus was ultimately getting after was he was trying to help this young man see that only Christ could fulfill the greatest commands of God. Only Jesus could live this out. Only Jesus could embody this from the moment he woke up to the moment he went to sleep, from the time of his first breath until the time of his last. And because only Jesus could do it, only Jesus could turn around and give it. I want you to think about this in Jesus's life. I could tell you hundreds of stories because I think every story in his life points to both his undivided love for God and his unrelenting compassion for people. But I'll just kind of give you two. Think about that moment in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross and you see just the, the weight of his love for God and the weight of his compassion for people in the same scene. And so there, there he is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying to his heavenly father. He says, Father, if there is any way, if there is any way for you to save the world without me going to the cross, would you please do that? But not my will, yours be done. And over and over and over through that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see him praying, surrendering his will to the Father, giving his love, heart, soul, mind, and strength to God. Do you remember what happens when the soldiers show up? The ones that are coming to arrest him, to drag him to the cross, to drive nails through his hands, to put a crown of thorns on his head, to mock him. The soldiers show up. And Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest friends, pulls out a sword and tries to kill one of the soldiers. He's a really bad shot, and so he misses and cuts the guy's ear off instead of his head. I mean, Peter was clearly a fisherman, not a soldier, but he's doing his best for the name of Jesus, and he tries, to, he tries to kill the soldier, cuts the man's ear off. And what does Jesus do in that moment? With unrelenting compassion, he picks up the man's ear and heals him. And then he hands himself over to that man who would drag him to a cross and kill him. Undivided love, unrelenting compassion. Think about what happens on the cross. Jesus is there on the cross. And even in his last breath, you see him giving his undivided love to his heavenly father. He cries out, daddy, why have you forsaken me? In other words, father, I am giving you all of myself and it seems like you are giving me none of yourself. Like, why have you forsaken me? And then he says, into my hands, I commit, commit my spirit. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Undivided love for God. And then he looks down at the soldiers gathered around the foot of the cross and it's almost as if he says, hey, and Father, while you're at it, would you forgive these folks? They have no idea what they're doing. Undivided love, unrelenting compassion. And he dies and he raises from the grave on the third day and he turns around and says, let me give you everything you need to fulfill that which you could never fulfill. Let me give you my righteousness because yours is not good enough to get you in. Let me give you my heart because yours is not good enough to get you in. Let me give you my strength and my mind and my soul. I mean, just think about the promises of scripture. You can go back and look these up. Ezekiel 36, God promises that he gives us his heart. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, he promises that he will give us Jesus' mind. John 14, 17, he promises that he will give us his spirit. 
Philippians 4, verse 13, he says, and I will give you my strength. Jesus says here, let me raise the bar on what it is that God is after. Let me accomplish it because you can't accomplish it. And then let me place that in you so that all of a sudden you can love God and you can show compassion to others in ways that you would have never imagined. When I was in seventh grade, me and one of my best friends, we decided that we were gonna learn how to dunk a basketball on a 10-foot goal. Um, there were a lot of problems with that, that kind of goal. You know, at the time, I was about four foot nine. Um, I had a six-inch vertical, and uh, there was no part of that dream that was rooted in reality. But we bought ankle weights, and we ran around with ankle weights, and we <laughs> tried jumping. And for about two weeks, you know, we were jumping and realizing this isn't gonna work. And so we did what any good seventh grader would do. We got out the, the bar, and we just lowered the goal down to seven feet. And we spent the rest of the summer just crushing it like Michael Jordan. I mean, just, just dunking. And it was an awesome summer. We played some great basketball in my driveway. And there was this moment where we were confronted with this reality that we could never meet what had been put before us. And so we just decided to do what we knew to do. Let's just lower the goal. And I think this is what we do all the time in the American church. What is God after? Unrelenting, undivided love towards God, unrelenting compassion to people. And we go, ah, that's not very realistic, Jesus. I work a nine to five job. Okay, how about Sundays, Wednesdays, and my quiet time? And we lower the bar. And Jesus says, no, that's, that's not the way that I meant for this to be. When I take my kids to the park, one of the things that they love for me to do there is these outdoor basketball goals. They're non-adjustable because they're outdoor goals. And so one of the things they love for me to do is to pick them up and to lift them so they can dunk the ball on the goal. And I was thinking of that last night when we were there at the park. I'm like lifting them up and they're like hanging on the rim and they're sticking their tongue out. They're just having an amazing time pretending that they can slam the basketball. And I went, isn't this what it means to be disciples? to live in this constant tension of inspiration and humility, of the reality that if there were only two commands in the whole Bible, Ethos Church would never come close to fulfilling them. But because Jesus wants to give you his heart, his mind, his spirit, his strength, you can, he can lift you up to put the ball in the goal. And I go, may we live in this tension. May we open up our lives to all that God has for us. May we not water down what he's after with this undivided love and this unrelenting compassion. And may we find ourselves swept up in the joy of having lives that are being opened up to the wonders of God. I go, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I just wanna give you a gift this morning. And here's the gift. You don't have to pretend here. No more faking. None of us expect you to be able to keep the rules. You, just, you can't do it. And so here's what I wanna invite you to do. Just surrender. Surrender your pride. Surrender any notion that you can do this without the help of God. Come to Jesus. Place your faith in Jesus. Be baptized into Jesus. Be filled with the spirit of Jesus. Receive his heart, his mind, his soul, his strength, and allow your life to be a conduit for the love of Jesus, both towards God and those around you. You can never love God the way that you were meant to love God without the help of Jesus. And you'll never love people the way you were meant to love people without the help of Jesus. So come to Jesus. Those of you that are followers of Jesus this morning, may we just find ourselves resting in the tension of both the bigness of what God asked for and the slowness by which those things seem to take root in our lives. This is a marathon, not a wind sprint. 
It's gonna be our whole lives trying to figure out how the mind and the heart and the soul and the strength of Jesus takes root in me. Do you know how frustrating it is to be a guy like me and to suck at this so badly and then have to preach to you about it? But all week long, God was going, hey, this is a journey of grace. This is a journey of grace. And I wanna challenge you, if you're a follower of Jesus this week, to do two things. To ask God, to ask God to make himself your number one. If you're a follower of Jesus, just ask God, God, would you really be my number one? Every thought, every decision, every fear, every motive, would you help my love to be undivided towards you? Here's the second thing I wanna challenge you to pray. And this will be more uncomfortable to pray for some of us, but I promise you it will lead you into good places. Second thing that I would challenge you to pray is, God, would you give me an opportunity too big for me to fulfill? Would you put someone in my path who so desperately needs your love? And Lord, would you give me the grace of letting that not be a short-term fix, but a long-term journey? This is the way the love of God begins breaking into our lives. This is the way the love of God begins revealing itself to the rest of the world. Do the things that matter most to Jesus matter most to us? Jesus of all things, what is it? Hero ethos. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second thing that is equally important to God is you'd love your neighbor as yourself. There are no greater commands than these. Jesus, may you help us. Let's pray as we get ready to take communion.